So part of, you know, being an educator is you can't see it as a job or a vocation. You need to see it as a responsibility. Because educating our, our youth, no matter what race they are, is great for our individual communities and it's great for our community at large and it's great for our global community and so really looking at your your kids seeing who they are being very culturally responsive like do they speak another language where they you know where do they come from what values do they have what traditions do they have just really seeing people as human beings very complex very multi-layered just understanding that, yes, it is really important for you to humanize your children. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. We're back. The 205 Vibe Podcast. I am your host, Mr. Earl Dotson Jr. in the building, along with my producer, Mr. Producer, Connor Childers. I got to make sure he gets his props and his shout outs, right? So, you know, I always say this. I know, I know, I know. Because I just we just have good guests on our podcast, but today uh, once again, I mean, man, ladies and the the one and only we have with us, Doctor Tiffany Brunson. <laughs> now I I was all set, to, and, and Tiff, Doctor Tiffany Brunson is the new director of equity and inclusion, the Rockford Public School System. And you know, I had a bunch, I had my questions already laid out and I'll have my first one I was all ready to dive into. However, however, when we were doing our mic checks, she just revealed something that I wasn't even gonna really ask. So now we just gonna start there. Like we gonna start with, you You intrigued me with how you start your day. I thought that was, that was very interesting because everybody's has a different routine. Is it? I know. I know. We tease each other. Would you prefer Tiffany? Tiffany, yes. Please. Tiffany, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Tiffany, hello. Hi, Earl Dotson Jr. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you taking the time because I know you're. You, I've, I've watched your your work ethic. I mean, you just jump right in. You just been going hard right out the gate. So much props to you. Thank you. T- so tell us, I'm serious. Before I even get in my questions, I just got to hear that again. I want the people to hear <laughs> your day, your routine. Um, I wake up at 5 a.m. every day and sometimes even on the weekend. Not, not that I want to, but it's just um, on the weekend it just happens. Get up in the morning. Uh, we have a uh, our dog. Her name is Pepper. She's a black lab. She was rescued from the Chicagoland um, lab rescue. And um, I walk her. Nice brisk walk, and then I come back and I get on the Peloton and I do a ride, usually with Alex or Tunde, and then I have a protein shake, and then I do a few more things, and I'm out the door to head to Rockford. That's just I just find that's just awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I just find that intriguing because I love dogs and um, routines are important, and. Uh, Man, so you want to you you do you you one of those in the morning exercise people? Yeah, sometimes uh, both. So I can do morning or evening. It depends on if the day is going to be really long, and I know I won't be able to do it when I get home. So then I like to do it in the morning and 
kind of just, it helps me just clear my mind, get ready for, you know, whatever the challenge may be for the day, because I just don't know sometimes. <laughs> and um, just to be prepared. But then I feel like I've accomplished something. It's a little bit of my military background, too. Sure. Doing a lot, like that whole slogan, you do, we do more before 9 a.m. than most people do yes. all day. Yes, yes, situation, yes, yes. yeah. So, I mean, before we ask, kind of just talk about how you got here to Rockford. I mean, I think one it's such a, I don't know the the one question that's such a, I don't know if you, when you think about how do you, how do you answer this question, but I, I want you to answer it in your way because mm-hmm. everyone answers it differently. But and I don't want to sound so cliche with it, but when people just say, "Yo, you know, just tell tell us about yourself," <laughs> I mean that that you know that's such a loaded question because we all are, we are so much more than the than our little Reader's Digest version of who we are, mm-hmm. but. Mm-hmm. The things that you think that you want to share with people about just a little bit like your background, what makes Tiffany Tiffany, uh, you know, the things you care about, mm-hmm. um, your family life. Mm-hmm. How would you when you when someone says, who are you or, or describe that part of you um, just about your your experiences and. Mm-hmm. Oh, your podcast is not long enough for I that. I mean, just just, but, <laughs> just just tell us a little bit about so, you. So, you know, when, you, when you're asked questions like that, you, you try to think of who the audience is, kind of is it a safe space to share anything that's real intimate or private. And I like to think of myself as pretty a pretty open um, person. I like to be as honest about myself as, as possible because I think we're very, you know, people are complex and we're multi-layered and, um, I'm, I'm definitely not perfect. I've made many mistakes, but have grown from that. Um, Stacey Abrams calls that failing up, if you will. So mm-hmm. making, um, good decisions. I think I'm the thing about me. So I was born on the South side of Chicago, um, born to, um, a teenage mom. And I always like to lead with that because I think that's really important for people to hear because lots of times people, those are, aren't things that, um, there are a lot of judgments that go with that. Right. Um, and so, and grew up on the south side of Chicago. I grew up in the, um, in the projects and then lived in Inglewood. So like t- pretty tough neighborhoods, but very, um, joyful neighborhoods to be honest with you because mm-hmm. even though they were tough there was a lot of joy a lot of laughter a lot of love and I also grew up uh, we lived many places because we grew up pre- I grew up pretty um pretty poor and so one of the things that we did was we we didn't live somewhere very long because it really was about what uh, my mother could afford um, I have a younger sister um April and April and I are 10 years apart and she lives in um, she lives in Tennessee. So she's a she's she's such a nice person. She's a I feel like she's like the best of my mom. She's a beautiful <laughs> smile, just smart and everything. And so um, I'm I'm married. I have a um, we have an eight year old son who is the absolutely best absolute best thing I've ever done. <laughs> my greatest creation, if you will. And we we love him to death. Um, I'm a crazy sports fan. Yes. Like crazy sports fan, like, and, I, and I've always been a sports fan. Like I've, mm. I played um, sports from age nine. Um, was the only girl on a little league team, like that kind of <laughs> that kind of thing, you know. So I love every sport. I watch anything, just about, you know. I'm like, what, what is that fencing? Let me let me check that out. Like, you know, just to just to check it out. So, um, I'm pretty competitive, but in a way that isn't like I need to win. I just need to compete. 
Like, I just love that. So even I approach my work that way, too. Like, you know, how can I get better? If I don't know something, I want to work at it and get better. Um, I'm intensely loyal. So I have friends that I've been friends with um, since I was a very young little girl. Uh, I value friendship and loyalty and um, uh, I love traveling. COVID has put a little damper on that, but I do love traveling. So, yeah, that, I mean, yeah, I'm, right. that's, uh, that's, you know, that's awesome. you know, you and I have uh, lots of some similarities mm-hmm. in our in our life experiences. One thing I'm glad I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that I think that's important because um, I feel the same way. Similarly, growing up in housing developments mm-hmm. and AKA the projects, <laughs> the PJs. but <laughs> but one of the things that I think is a misconception oftentimes is just is just because you're poor mm-hmm. doesn't mean that you weren't loved mm-hmm. or that there wasn't happiness in your Absolutely. household or there wasn't joy in your household. You just didn't have some of the things that other people had. So Absolutely. I love it to hear when people say, you know, it was, yeah, it was, we had our struggles, but we, we were happy and loved. Mm-hmm. You know? Absolutely. Take me to, you know, because part of this, what makes you, when you're about your current job, but I'm curious about your military piece. Mm-hmm. Um, was that was that after high school? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, how what was that like? Did you would you say that that how did that shape your future? What, what did that What do you think that did for you? Well, I was in ROTC in high school, so um, I was a really good student and a really good uh, athlete in high school. And but but it was interesting because I still even that being the case still wasn't real clear on what my opportunities or um, options would be like after high school. So I was in ROTC in high school and I really, um, I enjoyed it because I, there was a certain level of camaraderie, you know, working as a team, like all of those fun things to do. And, um, interesting, what branch? um, army. army and, okay. and so real interesting things. Um, and then that kind of sparked my interest in, so hmm, I had considered at one time making a career out of it. So going to the military and then maybe going on to the FBI, like intelligence or something sure, like sure. that. So I, that was one path that I had considered. So, yeah, so I, I joined, um, when I was 17, I, um, graduated from um, high school, then um, went on to be in ROTC in college as Mm, well. mm. And um, I ended up going to um, the Army and um, really enjoyed it. I actually actually enjoyed it. Got a chance to see, kind of see the world, meet people from all different walks of life. It just opened my world up. Yes, yes. Because it was just such a great opportunity to get a chance to, um, to serve and get to know different people that I would not have had the other opportunity to meet. So when you said you went to college, um, were you, did you get in just good student, good grades? Or? Yeah, I was, I was a really good student. So one thing about me, I've always <laughs> been serious about what, what's necessary to be serious about. Okay. Like I knew for me, I talked about growing up um, poor, that there was no going back. Sure. You know, there wasn't really any thing to go back to. Um, but school is where I've always felt my most comfortable, you know, as, as just as a human being, like mm-hmm, I really mm-hmm. always felt very comfortable in school. And so, um, yeah, I was, I was, man, I was part of the black student union in college. Um, almost anything that you could think of. I was on the track team, like all kind of so fun you're active. stuff. You're really, yeah, you're yeah, I was active. really active because I, I thought that was really important to, that's when I started getting involved in like, um, 
civic engagement and things like that too. So really just into, you know, the opportunities that were there, I just explored them all. And I, I really did enjoy college. Um, and was, like I said, very lucky to have found like mentors, um, awesome. and, and really good friends and things mm-hmm. like that. And yeah, I, I flourished. Yeah. That's, that's great. That's where we probably differ. Cause I had to, I joined the military cause I was just bad. <laughs> and I need, my mom was like, you bet you need to do something. Right? You got, you got getting up out of here with right. all this, all this, you right. do all this you into. Right. But it was one way to pay for college. It was, a, it did. It, it did. Way, absolutely. It was, a, it was an opportunity. And I, absolutely. Yes. Great, great for that. So talk about your education in terms of, you, you're teaching. I mean, you, obviously, you taught somewhere. Mm-hmm. You you were you you're a teacher, and then you became a principal mm-hmm. in several different schools. Mm-hmm. Talk about just a little bit your teaching experience. What you teach, and then how did you make that transition to being a principal? Yeah. So um, really quickly, I went to school. I was interested in being a veterinarian. Mm. So I went to school. I wanted to be a veterinarian. But then I took a job. Um, and this was so you start dating yourself when you start thinking about <laughs> assistive technology and things like that. And so I took a job as a scribe, okay, as a scribe for a young man who went to, I went to University of Illinois, um, go Illini. And he, to make a few extra bucks, I was a scribe for him. He was a quadriplegic. And so I, I got to I got to know him and kind of his struggles of being um, intellectually. He was sharp and he was very smart, very intuitive, just just a brilliant, brilliant young man. But because physically he the way he showed up in the world, people doubted his intelligence. Sure. And I connected with that as a black person. Mm. And that changed my whole trajectory. And I, t- I turned, you know, I turned that around and I became a, I changed my major. I became a special ed teacher. Because mm. of that. And so, wow. um, yeah, so I taught special ed. I taught special ed on uh, South Side Chicago. I taught special ed elementary. I've taught every grade from <laughs> from preschool all the way through 12th grade. So I taught in Chicago and I taught high school and um, at OPRF in Oak Park. Wow. So that that's um that's just, that's just great experience, right? And what a what a thank you for that. That's a, what a great story about what got you, what inspired you to to get into that teaching. So so now you you um, you, you were a principal. You, this job opens up in Rockford. Mm-hmm. Equity and inclusion, director of equity and inclusion. What intrigued you about that? What 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 made you say this is, you know, in a place that I may you not, may not necessarily be familiar with, but you have jumped right in to the work. Um, what was it about that that said, you know, this is this is something that I feel I'm I'm ready to do. I can Mm -hmm. do. I need to do. So I've been doing this kind of work my entire career from being a teacher leader to then um, being um, when I was a teacher at OPRF, I was president of African-American Faculty Advisory Council. So I've always been and and then I was leading MSAN, which is Minority Student Achievement Network. And so I've always been into uh, equity, inclusion and um, matters of race and how that affects it or the impacts that it has on student achievement. So I've been doing that work for a long time. And then in my previous district in Forest Park, 
I um, was leading um, a lot of our equity efforts with the National Equity Project, which made me familiar with Rockford. Mm. And then that's how I became familiar with Rockford. And when the when the, the chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officer position opened up, I was intrigued because at that at that time I had been a principal for you know many many years. Mm. Like at this point, I've been in administration for 13, 14 years. Sure, so. Sure. Um, I, it's school-based, um, and so I really wanted to have a greater impact, and so this position allowed me to do so, and I was very intrigued by Rockford, having some familiarity through the National Equity Project, and um, here I am. You were on my um, interview team, so. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, I was okay, so here uh, I am. <laughs> so you, you, the, you, the great segue, right, when you talked about um, your interest in, you know, matters of race, right? Um, all I, I think since I've been alive, I mean, it's, it's always just been a a challenging topic and, and subject for us um, that we that we talk about in our country, um, and we um, I think we we make we've made we make progress, right? We make progress, right? We this whole this this idea, this concept of of building a more perfect union, um, so. Race in America, right, particularly for African-Americans and, and as it relates to education, right? Just what is your general philosophy? We, we know we have African-Americans who, yourself is a perfect example, who are who, who succeed, who have a drive, this, this ability to learn and want to learn and be successful and work. Um, but and oftentimes that we dwell on those who don't, and for in our case, oftentimes for African Americans, it's just it's not like other races don't have the same struggles as a race of education, right? We just tend to sometimes have more. Um, it's more concentrated, uh, so, so to speak. What what's your thought on that? In terms of where do we? What, have, what is your experience? What have you seen as it relates to people wanting to, how do we get more out of our, our African-American students? Where, where do we miss the mark? I mean, is it a combination of all these things of home it, life, family life? It's a combination life? of things. What, what's, your, what's your just take on that? So for me, I think it's a combination of things because my success, if we want to call it that, because I, I still feel like there's still so much to accomplish, has not been without uh, lots of barriers, and lots of failings and lots of, you know, um, some teachers not believing in you. Some even uh, going to a school that didn't have enough books for the students and not enough desks. Like just I have had the um, great privilege, but also the um, very hard if you want to say education of the inequity of education itself, like the fact that you can go to um one school on one side of town in the same city and it looks completely different. The expectations of the students are different. And this is usually, you know, um, schools that our BIPOC students go to, our black and indigenous uh, people of color, like a black and brown students. They usually, you know, are, are unfortunately in schools that are not equitably funded. They are, you know, there are people that there who don't truly believe that they can learn. And then the one thing that I have found to be the, the biggest issue, it isn't just that there are people who have low expectations. Some of them, they have no expectations simply because what you said about how you and I shared, you know, a very similar upbringing. 
and people will look at you and say, well, oh, poor you. So let me not push you because your life is already hard enough and it's already, you know, so they're very, um, it's like I pity you so I don't push you. And so, because, you know, I don't want to bring any more stress on you because, you know, life is already, as a black kid, you know, living in a, in a difficult community, you know, with challenges, it, it's already too much. And that is the, the most disrespectful thing to do, you know, because it's like, well, you know, you have no expectations of me. And that, hop- that happens unintentionally and unconsciously more often than not. And that right there is the worst is because you just have no expectations. That's heavy. But you just I mean you just dropped. That's heavy. That's heavy right there. Yeah. So so where does that come from? So can a can an African American teacher also feel that way about a student? Yeah, or is it just they can. Can other races feel that way? They can. It's it's more often it doesn't happen because there's statistics that show you that uh, if a black child has one, even just one black teacher, it changes um, percentage wise. It, it boosts the percentages of who will graduate from from high school, who will go on, who will be successful. It's just simply because we see each other differently. I see you. I understand you. I understand the struggles that you may have. I also, most importantly, I see your brilliance. I see your excellence. I see all of that. And that's more of an asset-based thinking of a student. So, yeah, a lot of it is just, you know, unfortunately, there, there are things that are coming at us every day that we don't even know from the media, from, um, your community from within your own culture, all of these things, you get all of these different messages. And sometimes it just becomes part of who you are and you don't even know that you're being fed all of these, this misinformation, all these lies, you know, and I I think I've said this before in a meeting and I said, this is the reason why, you know, um, slavery lasted for 12 generations is because it became part of what people believed in, even though they knew it wasn't true, that, you know, that um, enslaved people were not human. And that's because everything around them was telling them this is the truth. And so at some point you start to believe that that's the truth. And then everyone just starts to believe it until someone really says, you know what, I don't believe that. You know, one of the things that I actually I learned from the, just just building off our, our conversation here, one of the things that I did learn from the National Equity Project, and I like to just I, I think about this sometimes when we talk about you, you said you know if a, if a student has one black teacher, so one of the things I learned and we did this project with the National Equity Project where we talked about where there used to be black teachers, mm-hmm. right? It's not like they just were not never around. Uh, but somehow we get, they got lost in translation as we moved up north and became unionized. And now we have, we have a situation um, where, and I'm, I'm not sure, I'm, it's not like this everywhere, but I know here it's about 80% of the teachers are white females. So now we have to go in and kind of do this work that you're doing. Um, how do you do that with, with people who are who feel they're good people, feel they are not racist, mm-hmm. don't have a racist bone in their body. Um, you talked about sometimes we do this unconsciously. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you help educate teachers mm-hmm. and not make them feel like they're bad people mm-hmm. and how and how they relate to mm-hmm. students of other races? 
What, what's I mean, what, what's that like? I mean, is that, is that part of the work? Is that ultimately, ultimately what you were trying to get to is yeah. to how do you see me mm-hmm. um, as you see someone of your own background and culture? What's that so look like? Part of, you know, being an educator is you can't see it as a job or a vocation. You need to see it as a responsibility because educating our, our youth, no matter what race they are, is great for our individual communities and is great for our community at large and is great for our global community. And so really looking at your, your kids, seeing who they are, co- being very culturally responsive, like do they speak another language? Where they, you know, where do they come from? What values do they have? What traditions do they have? Just really seeing people as human beings, very complex, very multi-layered, just understanding that, yes, it is really important for you to humanize your children, your students, your young people, whatever word you want to use, you know, but it really is humanizing and seeing them for their brilliance and their assets and what they can bring, as opposed to seeing them as broken or need to be fixed or that they can't do this. It's always, you know, making sure that you're not looking at them that way because once you look at something that way, that's the only way you see it. Once you look at a human being that way, that's the only way you see them. So therefore you, you interact with them that way because that's, to you, that's that's appropriate, even though it may be inappropriate. And to your point about, that's always a thing that I'm not racist. So what I always tell people to think about this, what it, who is affected with an A, what is the effect with an E? And then most importantly, what is the impact? If you can think about that in many ways, are you per- perpetuating a, uh, an existing inequity? Are you creating a new one? You know, by making this particular decision, um, are you too harsh on the student? Are you impatient with the student? You, are you pushing the student and challenging them in a way that can make them better? But really, it comes down to humanizing your students and thinking about your school culture. Would you want your own child to go to that school? Is that some? Is it a place where you feel um, proud? Are you proud of where you work or proud of the work that you're doing? All of that comes down to that. So let me ask you this, because we know there are white teachers who do an excellent job, mm-hmm. right? Who have who pour themselves into mm-hmm. their work and into their students. Um, so obviously we're not talking about that group. Um, but let me ask you this. How much in this complex mm-hmm. situation, in, 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 in the complex profession of, of, of a teacher, right? Mm-hmm. And people who do it, they do it because they love it, right? Mm-hmm. They love, it's their vocation. How much, what do you say to people who say, well, like how much responsibility is on the student? We talked about you mm-hmm. who are engaged. You know, we have those mm-hmm. students who are going to do their homework. Mm-hmm. How much is it on the student who come to class late, mm-hmm. you know, does not respectful, mm-hmm. cussing the teacher out, not treating their classmates mm-hmm. right. You can't connect with the family because mm-hmm. they may or may not care or be mm-hmm. involved. Um, you know, because you, you you would hear that, right? That, you know, that's part of it, right? It's is it, would you say it's easier to dismiss a student when you talk about affect and effect? Mm-hmm. A student who comes to you, and that's mm-hmm. their attitude, as opposed to how do you then, 
you know, you and I have both done this work, but then yeah, how do you, yeah. I mean, behaviors. when you have, when you got, when you got all these other kids, yeah. you, there's always these challenges. Mm-hmm. So what do you do with, with some of those kids? Is there, is there, is, is there ever a point where you just say, Hey, look, a uh, young man, young lady, this is not, I see this is not going to work. Mm-hmm. And people say, well, you, you can't write them off because mm-hmm. they just end up in your community mm-hmm. and they don't, they might end up in your, in your mm-hmm. criminal justice system. Yeah. Um, what, so how, what, I mean, again, well, how do, how much, how much is it on the teacher? How much is it on a family? How much is it on this, the individual mm-hmm. child th- th- themselves? So all of that. <laughs> Everyone's responsible. Mr. Producer, what do you, you think about that question, Mr. Producer? <laughs> Everyone is is responsible. There's always, for you, that's that, that mirror window work, right? Mirror meaning you as an individual and your, your personal, you know, who you are as a person. And then window, like what's happening outside? But let me, I think the best way to answer that question is this. I believe the most important thing you can do is change the conditions, you change the conditions in which anyone, especially our young people, are um, learning in, it's going to go from either survival to them thriving. So it really is about the conditions that you're creating because students coming in with all of that, they're coming in with baggage. They're coming in with, you know, behavior is just communication. That means that there are things that they do not currently possess Um in, in a way of explaining themselves or advocating for themselves. And sometimes it's, it seems to be a power struggle because oftentimes they have no power. And this is the only thing that they actually have power over is I can, I can be rude to you or I can um, disrespect you or disobey you. Because at some point, and it may not be you, but at some point, some adult or some system has failed them and that they have figured out this is my only way to survive is to keep myself alive this way. And that may be rhetorical or it actually <laughs> may actually be I need to keep myself alive. And so really thinking of it as a system, like if we make our systems more healthy, more healing, more resilient, then it's different. But if you know that in this a certain community that it, it really is, um, you know, students have to cross three different gangs to get to school and things like that. That's a whole system. And it's not just a school system. It may be the community. It may be, you know, America at large. I mean, it, this you're talking about generations of this that, that has happened. And there's not one way to fix it. There just has to be many ways. But it really isn't about fixing the student. The child. Okay. It okay. really is about fixing the whole system. Oh, I like that. You know, and everyone is responsible for that. I love that answer, right? Because that way you don't, it's not one group or one person's yeah. responsibility. We're it's, all it's responsible all. for that. You know, so what, what's been your experience as, uh, you know, as an educator, you know, being, being in the classroom and being an administrator? You know, <laughs> we have all this, this talk now. Um, whether it's about critical race theory, the 1690, all <laughs> that, that crazy. People don't actually know what no, that means. No, they don't. People don't know what that means. Um, I, I just laugh about that because I'm like, it is. I, and I, I know where that came from. And I know, I, you know, we, we understand that mm-hmm. um, and the politics around that. Mm-hmm. However, because I tell people like, when people come over here, I'm like, look, obviously you've never been in one of our schools uh, or you don't even know where you at right now. <laughs> uh, but, but. One of the things that I think our schools here in Rockford have done a really a much better job of is particularly in the, you know, Black History Month, for example, 
you know, they really, really uh, go out of their way to teach their entire school, you know, just a little about black history, some of the figures uh, who, are, who are part of the history of America to make America what it is today. Do you, do you, in your experience, how important is that, right? How important is it for, we talk about young, uh, young, young um, minority students seeing themselves in some of the educators, but do you think it matters that they see themselves in the history mm-hmm. of of greatness of mm-hmm. of how you know we we all we stand on the shoulders of these giants mm-hmm. who all have come before us? Mm-hmm. How important is that is is in the development of particularly an African American child to mm-hmm. say, hey, we we our ancestors did lots to make this country great. Does that have any impact on the, how they learn or how they act or behave in society? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I, my aspiration is is that we live in, we will someday, it may not be in our lifetime, but we will live in a world where we don't have to have Black History Month, Women's History Month, Hispanic Heritage Month, you know, um, and and thinking about uh, Indigenous Peoples Day, you know, they just get a day, you know, that kind of stuff. I think it's really important that it's, it is every single day that every single person feels hears, sees themselves reflected in, um, and especially our, our black and brown youth, that it's reflected in what they read, um, you know, the conversations that are happening in class, absolutely those who are standing in front of the class, um, whether that's administrators, whoever it is, um, teachers, all of that's important. And yes, for me, I think the most important thing about history is truth. And oftentimes that's the issue that we have, because in order to talk about um, all of the greatness and all of those who came before us who have made you know it possible for you and I to even have these jobs and to be here, it came at a great cost. And so understanding that is really important. Um, but yeah, we need to make sure that we're historically factual. That means the good, the bad, and you know, <laughs> otherwise, I think yes. all of that's important. One of the things we hear, and I, I heard, I hear this often, because just back to talking about race, mm-hmm. right? Hard subject uh, for people to discuss sometimes. So, we one of the things we hear is other races of people who say, "Well, you know, I grew up poor too. Mm-hmm. You know, I, we didn't have a lot of resources. Mm-hmm. We ate, we ate, we ate ramen noodles." And, and and salt and pepper sandwiches and butter sandwiches mm-hmm. too, um, but just because you're black or whatever, why why is your experience so different than mine? Mm-hmm. Um, what what's the difference, right? I I, 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 I answer that. You know, I, I know it's obvious, but we just you hear that it's often. It's not obvious though, it's right? Not people say, well, I, why 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 is your experience? mean more than mm-hmm. my experience, which wasn't great either. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, I, I think it is very, we have to be careful about um, the oppression Olympics, as I like to call it. <laughs> we, we don't need to engage in that because the reality is... The oppression Olympics, I'm going to write that the, down. The, the reality is um, I can speak very uh, frankly about the fact that I am a black woman with a PhD, Right. And I can tell you that I have been followed around places, high-end places, low-end places, 
and criminalized just simply because I walked in and I was I look different. I wear my hair, you know, in 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 locks, and knowing that two candidates, we can have the same um, experience. We can have the same, um, you know, even the white person can have less experience or less education but has something over me that that I could never be you know and so that's important for people to understand that, that race does matter I wish to live in a world where it does not but in the in, in the meantime in 2020 <laughs> it does and so we don't need to go into the oppression Olympics because I because we because black folks are we we gold medalists at that <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying. It really is. And 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 when people do that, it diminishes mm. how hard it is to 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 be in this skin every day, to walk and present yourself to the world this way. Mm. Because it is it is very difficult. Even in spaces where you think that you are considered an equal, I have dealt with microaggressions at work. Mm. I have dealt with uh, overt aggressions mm. in no matter who I am, you know, what space I've been in. And so um, I've had to prove my intellectual uh, capacity when most uh, white people don't have to do that. It is almost assumed that they are, you know, smart or they are capable. Sure. And so that's why I said, you know, we don't need to even go into the oppression Olympics. Mm. Sure. We got gold medalists, <laughs> sure. silver medalists sure. and bronze medalists. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's funny. I heard you say 2020. You still live. You, you 2021. Still live. <laughs> yes, I am still living. <laughs> still living. I'm stuck. I'm stuck. I'm stuck. Yes. You know, let, let me, let's talk about the other side of the coin of that, mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, that's one thing I, I've, one of the things you and I, we connected right away, just mm -hmm. having those real conversations. So here's a real part as well, right? Let's go to, the, let's flip the, the, the other side of that coin. Mm -hmm. So everything you said, 100% correct and true. How have you dealt with, though, however, our people mm -hmm. who sometimes can are equally vicious, mm -hmm. right? And we call it, you know, whether they they go they hate knowing you or whatever, mm -hmm. whatever things that whatever's going on, right? When when you you know when you reach a certain level of success, you just it just comes with the territory. Mm -hmm. How have you dealt with our own people who don't know you? Mm -hmm. Don't know anything about you, but they see you now. Oh, it's Dr. Tiffany Brunson. <laughs> and they look at, you know, what you may drive or how you dress, how you present yourself. Mm -hmm. um, how have you had to deal with that part of it as well, right? So it's almost like a double-edged sword for mm -hmm. sometimes when you reach a certain level of success. Mm -hmm. It's it's not only dealing with what you just mentioned, but it's also some sometimes our own people who who look at look at us differently as and don't know I'm, I'm from I'm, I'm from I'm still I'm still that same person came from the same hood um, but we just made different choices right what, what's that been like for you I mean I yeah I I've been lucky I don't get I haven't had as much as the of that but I have um, definitely dealt with that but to to be frank about that I've I find that to be um the same issue. All of these issues are rooted in um, 
just racial disparities. Like people even feeling like, I mean, this goes back to if you want to talk about W.E.B. Du Bois and his fight with Booker T. Washington. Like mm. you understand, yes, like it yes, goes back yes. to that. Like yes, yes. There, there could be a talented tenth. Yet, um, well, we want to assimilate. Like it's all of that has, mm. you can trace all of yes. this all the way back to when we were freed. Well, we could talk about when we were enslaved. We had people who lived in the house and then people who worked the fields. It goes all the way back to that. And then reconstruction and then move forward to, to, to today. It all has its roots in the haves and as I like to call the ain't never gonna get. <laughs> and that is because America has created a system of competition. Mm. That there can only be one. Mm. There can only be that. Mm. And it, it is not it is in it is not just about race. It is just what we've done. And so yeah, you're right. Our people do it too. But I, I trace it all back to that, back to those structures of who's who is considered valuable and who is mm. considered not valuable. Mm. So, so there's a historical context. That, no, that's, and that's I'm, a, a, I'm great, a history buff. So. That's a great answer. That's a great answer. <laughs> right. Saying, you know? Right. Malcolm and Martin, you know, you know, saying the same kind of concept. Um, so I, I'm, I'm going to let you say the term. Um, but when we talk about the we, we so in, in, in Rockford Public Schools, we've talked about the equity imperative. Right. How do we make sure that all of our students have access to a high quality education? Um, that's not determined by your zip code, right? Um, and right now we know African-American students are the furthest away from this, right? And have been, right? This is nothing new. Have been for quite some time now. And there's no silver bullet. There's no magical answer to that. Um, but how do you deal, how do we, you know, we, we you, there's a term I know that we talk about, but how do we, target african-american students but yet don't forget um our our all our other brothers and sisters of all these other races right how do we and make families and parents feel like we're not we're not giving special treatment to anybody uh, but we know we need to work a little bit harder mm -hmm. in this area mm -hmm. how do, what does that look like so once again historically that goes back to what we just talked about so it's a great uh connection and so the the the, the term um Targeted universalism um, from the great mind of John A. Powell. And it really, it has always existed because it things that have been um, around like the, like WIC, women, infant, and children, those things were put into place because, you know, uh, men were going off to war, right? And then they weren't coming back. So the United States had to figure out a way how to take care of people. Social Security, you have to be a certain age to receive that, right? So that's targeted to a certain group. Um, we have always had these things, but they've been in, like, social programs. Um, and so now we have taken some of that and we're bringing it, in, bringing it now into education. And really, targeted universalism is true equity. Equality is the goal. Equity is the path. And targeted universalism is what we are using. Targeting those students, those young people who need the most, will, in fact, help 
all students. And so targeted universalism, even thinking about the curb cut cut effect by Angela Blackwell, which I love to use this term and I love to use this example. So, um, and this is for everyone who will hear this, you will never think of this again the same way. So, you know, those little grooves that are in the street, right? Uh -huh. Those grooves were put in the street for um, our brothers and sisters who have accessibility issues, who are in wheelchairs or um, um, have accessibility issues, they mobility issues. Sure. And so those were put into place so that they can have the same access and opportunity to get around their communities and their neighborhoods just like you and I. But who uses them? You? Have you ever used a stroller and mm -hmm. you had your child, your lovely little brown-faced mm -hmm. baby in, the ch mm -hmm. <laughs> in there, and you roll them up there because it makes it easier for you to get around? Sure. If you've moved oh, furniture. Great example. You move furniture, right? So you pull it and you use that, right? Um, it, anything. Everyone has used it, and you probably didn't even think, like, what? Man, that just made this a whole lot easier. I use it because I got I got bad knees. If you got bad knees or anything, <laughs> right? You use it. So it was targeted for a particular population of people who needed the assistance. Mm -hmm. But every everyone universally can use it. And so that is what targeted universalism is. It's Love. targeting, giving those who need it the most, but universally it will help us all. And so I always like to use that one. It's called the curb cut effect. And when you think of it in that way, it just makes it, it just makes it more understandable, like how we have to take care of the people who need it most because that's what a great society is supposed to do. Say that. You know, Say that. Because then when we all, when those students or those young people or the elderly or whomever need it, and specifically for RPS with our students, if they rise, then we all rise. Because otherwise, mm -hmm. I mean, what, what are we doing every day? Absolutely. You and I have both... Um, been exposed to the National Equity Project. Yes. I think you mentioned them about how you kind of discovered us, mm -hmm. little, little yes. old Rockford. <laughs> um, and just you were familiar with some of the people who we work with. And I remember mm -hmm. some of the work we did together. One of the things that they did that, that, that I really, really appreciated um, was bringing to the forefront this idea of student voice. Yes. And um, it seems like a very simple thing to say or simple concept, but not often utilized mm -hmm. or not often practiced mm -hmm. in a lot of educational systems, right? It's the, I'm the adult, yep. you're the student, I've lived more, I know more, <laughs> you're here yes. to learn from me, young person. Mm -hmm. um, why is it so important? That, 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 tell, talk about the impact of, of students talking about their own experiences mm -hmm. and why we should really, that should be something of a more of a standard mm -hmm. kind of practice as opposed to something we just kind of do every right. now and again. The most important thing that we have to realize is that the people who, <laughs> who are going to make the changes are going to be, should be the people who are going to be affected by the changes. So if we're going to make changes for students and we're going to make decisions for students, they should be part of the decision making. So really that whole thing about student voice, to your, to your point, it, it, it can't be tokenism. It can't be, hey, let's get your feedback and then thanks young person and pat them on the head and then they go <laughs> on their way. But every real movement that has been born in this country has come from the youth. Every movement, 
young people were against wars. Young people were against things, and they were like, we demand to be treated this way. And it usually is born out of their hubris because they're so young and not and they're not bogged down by um, a lot of the things that we end up worrying about, like um, hierarchies and who's in charge and who all of those types of things. They, they have a tendency to think of it from their heart. And they're like, well, this doesn't feel good to me. So it's not, I'm not being treated well. They know that. And oftentimes what we don't do is we don't listen to them with the same respect that we, that they deserve. Because if you're trying to change the conditions for young people, why not ask them, Hey, how are we doing? How can we be better? How can we do this better? What, what ideas do you have? And it really is, um, the most important thing that we can do is to be in community, co-create with our students, be shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm with them. I love being around young people and talking to them about their goals and aspirations and what they want. And I've always believed that their voices were important and valuable and equal. That equal part is so important because without students, we wouldn't have jobs. (laughs) But that is really a cultural thing. Like, you know, we grew up in black families, you know, (laughs) you know, you know, you're supposed to be seen and not heard. Like there's a lot of those types of things. Right. But the reality is we things are different. Mm -hmm. And we have to do things differently if we want different results. And we have to listen to our students. So it shouldn't be like uh, dealing with adultism and tokenism and just doing it because we want to check a box and say we did it. We have to do it with with authenticity and be really genuine about that. Excellent. I can can just sit here and talk to you. (laughs) Let me ask you about um, just just education, Mm -hmm. just putting your educator hat back on in terms of, you know, our society has this, idea this this concept if you will um that's just it's been, it's been a just tried and true practice um about you know what does success look like what does intelligence look mm-hmm. like emo whether whether that's emotional or kind of the, the being an intellectual mm-hmm. being well read um Talk, when we talk about defining success, and we have this idea about education, right? So we know kids, right? You got to go learn some of the basics: reading, writing, arithmetic, right? <laughs> God right. learns. You got to learn that right. stuff. But when we talk about how it defines success for an individual, I'm just looking at some of these young folks these days who just they're entrepreneurs mm-hmm. and. Sure. Yeah, you need to learn how to, you know, take care of your your accounting and your books and mm-hmm. the laws and some of those things. But they really it's, it's a it's a different generation about how they think about or define success. I guess I'm asking all that because one of the things we do a lot in education now, and you hear this from educators, is you know we test testing tests. We got all these state tests, tests, mm-hmm. tests. Um, how should we look at that? I mean, is that the right? I mean, is it is it about, hey, here are these standardized tests and you need to know this to be successful, to go to college, to be this. Mm-hmm. I mean, should we should we think differently about that or is a pathway always going to be you need to go to school, you got to get good grades because <laughs> you got to go to college so you can get a good job. Um, is that the is that still the framework we should be kind of operating under? 
Well, I think one of the things we need to think about is why why education looks the way that it does. A lot of this was, it was you know, historically it was created. The reason why we have schools, you know, school starts in September and it ends in June. A lot of that had to do with harvest and mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. of these things. And mm-hmm. then there was the launching us. We had launching a Sputnik. So then we had then we were the race, you know, to the, to space and all of these things. Like there's always inflection points, right? And so it has a tendency and education is the place in which anything that happens in the world it falls in our lap to catch up to <laughs> right um is it supposed to be innovation oh catch up to that or is it supposed sure. to? and the reality is when we're looking at data points especially in schools data points are human beings and when we're looking at this and you and i work together and you think about the people that we work with and the people that we will work with or have worked with what employers are really looking for are people that can think critically work in teams those soft skills and oftentimes we don't spend enough time teaching our students how to do that and so really if you talk to a lot of people who have become very successful and i say that in air quotes for those um, people out in the radio world um a lot of them will tell you they were not good students. Einstein was not a good student. Like, you know, things like that. And so we have a tendency to want to fit everyone into a box. And I think we do our students a disservice when we do that instead of looking at them, their assets that they have and the great things that they can offer us. Because sometimes we can be the ones that stifle innovation and we can stifle critical thinking because we're just like, well, you got to take all these tests because we live in an accountability world. Accountability, because we're also back to what I said originally, it's all about a competition. Mm. It's all about competition to the point that we can have all this competition and no one wins. Mm. Because we're just too busy chasing each other and chasing mm-hmm. this and chasing that. I mean, that's, it happens with all of our different countries. Like, who's leading the world in this? Who's leading the world in that? And then in, in the end, we're not really thinking about our own people. Because think about the steel mill was hot at one time. Coal was hot at one time. But now, those aren't jobs. They have gone by the wayside. But then we leave those people with no other skills. Mm-hmm. So now they don't even have other skills to get new jobs. Now we're talking about wind turbines and all of this stuff. And if you Google all all of the jobs that are coming, you know, supposedly. And then there are jobs that we don't even know where exists, right? But we, if we're just stifling innovation and creativity in our students, the jobs that do not exist right now, we're going to have a hard time with those people being able to create because sure. we're not giving them enough time to do that because sure. we want them to do this thing for us. That's, and capitalism is what drives a lot of this as opposed to, you know, making sure that we're really educating our students. Man, you, man, you, Dr. Bronson, you, <laughs> you deep, know what? you deep, <laughs> man, you, you, man, you, you deep up in here. You know, let me, you know, I just, I just stand on this real quick. Um, I hear, I've, I heard, I heard. So first I, I remember I went to a conference, um, several years back and the um the speaker was talking about how he don't they, they don't give credit they they don't they they're not impressed I should say with whether you're a superintendent or a principal in a district that already has 99% graduation rates mm-hmm. versus um districts who don't have such a, as high as a graduation rate you talked about inequity in funding mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in schools in the same city. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't want I'm not going to ask why is that, but 
It, what's what's the the way families think about that, right? Mm-hmm. About, I mean, how big of a role does that play? I had a teacher tell me, you know, my kids. Uh, it was a teacher and, and a coach, and he you know said basically said, you know, I could go up there in, in this other district and coach those kids, but they couldn't come down here and coach my kids mm-hmm. because they have more two parent households and they have air conditioning in their schools mm-hmm. and. There's very little, the hallways are, you know, things are, mm-hmm. it's not like it's all, you know, uh, this Pollyannish, mm-hmm. you know, fairies and, 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 and candy land. Mm-hmm. But how, does that make a big difference? I mean, why does that make, why is that such a big, why does that matter? So you're talking about like facilities? Facilities, why, why like that. some of those, some of the, the people who tend to want to go into those type of environments mm-hmm. versus those who don't have much of a choice and more of a, in a more of a public mm-hmm. education setting. Mm-hmm. Um, why do we see that a lot? I mean, we, 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 you, we, even in, you know, the burb, even you coming out of Chicago, we know you go to certain districts. Mm-hmm. It's just different. People move there mm-hmm. for a different experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but just kind of building on that last question of, again, that's how some people still define success. Mm-hmm. That you graduated and you got you got these all these accolades, um, as opposed to other people who may great graduated, but ooh, woo, you made it, baby. <laughs> you made it with all them these C's and D's, but you made it, baby. But listen, there there are a lot of C students who go on to make millions of dollars. You know, I and I think that's it. And let me tell you this. And, I, and, and as I, you know, you know me, I say I'm gonna keep it a buck. <laughs> Is that a lot of that is a facade? Ooh, a lot of things. That's that, what I was getting. A lot to get of to. things we see are a facade. I mean, the, the way you show up every day is a facade. Oftentimes, people until you actually sit down. That's why listening. Um, I think I said that before about how Nikki Giovanni said, while language is a, is a gift, listening is a responsibility. Sit down and talk to people and and peel away all the pristine, you know, um, these, you know, everything, manicure lawns and things like that. And you'll find people who are struggling with other things. We're all, that's why I said, let's humanize this whole experience that we we are engaging in together. And that right there, people move to these communities because they feel like um, that's a culture, you know, that that they agree with, that the morals and ethics are kind of similar, or they want to have an experience like you said but also a lot of those um, places are very homogenous and there's not a whole lot of um, you know there's not a whole lot of people with with divergent beliefs if you will sure, sure and so some of that is just a facade you know and if you're saying that look at that that neighborhood looks so great and that means those people are great mm. but then you look at another mm. community and you can see that mm. you know maybe the you know, maybe there might be some abandoned buildings. Maybe, but like I, I go back to this whole system because why is why does that exist? But to your point that you said earlier, that doesn't mean that there's any less love or uh, parents don't want the best for their children and things like that. It's just this is the circumstance that we ha- we're living in because our circumstances have us here. If we had more access and opportunity, then the circumstances would be different. So really, it's about access and opportunity. Um, I know, and I'm trying to get out of here. I'm trying to get out of here. I'm trying, but you <laughs> just okay. keep me. Um, so I just want to make sure I, I touch on this before um, this idea, because I know you've been dealing with some of this already in our system. Um, 
um, about how we how we discipline our students of color and um, how it varies um, at time from school to school, from teacher to teacher, from administrator to administrator. Um, one of the things when you talked about me being in your interview, but one of the things you said that I caught, right? You listen to, I listened to you. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you said that I was very impressed with um, when you talked about as a principal, and I forget what one of your last schools, and I know you and you in the shy, you and shy, you and shy time. <laughs> and but you talked about how I think you said I might have suspended or expelled maybe one kid if ever, maybe two kids the past year, this past year. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm and I'm I'm saying I'm, I'm I'm thinking about now how. We have lots of students who were a lot of, who were remote last year. A lot of them, they're all they're back in person. Mm-hmm. Students are kind of relearning mm-hmm. how to behave and the norms of school. Um, when we talk about discipline, though, what's the approach? Particularly, and we know teachers. A lot of them are overwhelmed. Got lots of kids. Mm-hmm. Hard to build relationships, but. I've been hearing, I've been, I've been in schools when I've been taught asking mm-hmm. this question. And there are those who have the mindset to just say, you know what? Hey, look, tough love. Look, we ain't, well, I don't got time to be coddling and, mm-hmm. you know, pouring warm cups of milk mm-hmm. and giving mm-hmm. hugs, mm-hmm. right? You're going to get this, you're going to get it together or you got, you getting up out of here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so how do we, you know, we know there are some things that students do that you just, you got to do like, Hey, look, mm-hmm. that's just, Maybe not so much the code of conduct and following mm-hmm. to the letter of the law, but there are just some things that you just say, hey, look, mm-hmm. that's just you out of order for mm-hmm. that. But then how did you get to a place to where it sounds like your teachers and your administrators just had a philosophy that we just not going to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. And the teachers who sometimes and I'm again, I've been talking to teachers who hear that and, and who will get upset when they send a kid out with a referral and the principal talks to him and say, hey, cool, calm down cool out, mm-hmm. get back into class, mm-hmm. do your work. And so what do, you, how do what, what do you think, how do you answer this idea of, is it better to get the kids who sometimes just don't want to be there out of there? Or is it, is it, is it, what's the idea? Or is it better to say, Hey, let's just give them some chances here. Mm-hmm. They trying to, they're getting back. Let's, let's keep, let's try to do everything we can to keep them in school. Mm-hmm. What's your philosophy? What was your philosophy on that? So I always, my, my philosophy when it comes to young people is they're young people. And the thing about young people is what do we expect of them to do is to make mistakes. I don't take anything personal, uh, personally, unless it's personal. Like if a student said something like, you know, use some profane language because they out of anger. I was just like, okay. You know, I prefer to be <laughs> that you not use that language and you use more appropriate language, but I'm listening to you. And if that's the, if that's what you got to do to get it out, then get it out. I know I don't take anything personally unless unless it is personal. And so then my uh, philosophy. Can I, can I, hang on, I, I don't mm-hmm. want I don't want to get I don't want to get up. Mm-hmm. What what's person? What's give me an example? What's personal? So what's the difference? I, the, the, I would say the difference would be something like you actually intentionally 
harmed me. Okay. All right. Do you Zoom. understand what I'm saying? Gotcha. Like that's gotcha. an intentional act. Okay. Okay. But Zoom something sure like I, I walk into the room and two kids are in, in the middle of an argument and I hear somebody drop an F bomb, I'm not all of a sudden ten days because you're not because okay. code of conduct okay. said you can't curse. G- I'm like, gotcha. Gotcha. You know, okay. I'm not that sensitive. Okay. 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 But the point of it is this. They're going to make mistakes. That is what young people do. But if we are going to make, we cannot suspend our way out of this situation that we're in with our students. Because understand this, the way you are treating that one student that is in crisis, because I always think of a kid that's, that's really dealing with something, they're in crisis. And they don't have the skills, they don't have the communication ability, they don't have something that I do at 49 years old. You know, I will be 49 in November. They don't have some of the things I have because they don't have the life experience that I have. So I have to look at them that day for that moment right then and say, what do they have and what don't they have and what do they need? And really, their behavior right now is telling me that they have a need. So what can we do? Yeah, it, it, it oh man, it takes so much relational capital that you need to build with kids because mm. that's what I like to call it mm. is talking to them when they're not in crisis getting to know their family getting to know who they are where they come from have you ever been on the block where they live if you have you ever knocked on their door if they didn't come to school like those types of things because let me tell you this when you are disciplining or undressing that kid you know with words pointing at them whatever you're dealing with the other students are watching you Mm. how you deal with them because what they're saying is so when i make a mistake is she going to treat me the same way they may never make a mistake but in their mind they're like you don't respect me as a human being you don't respect me they watch and so for me my whole thing was always with my staff is we had this philosophy, and I and I do miss my staff. They were they were wonderful. We we were in the trenches for a long time with each other. I said, if one person, meaning an adult or a child, is in crisis and need help, ten of us need to come running, not to come run to jump in on whatever's happening, but to help resolve the situation. And that and when you have the philosophy is that we're a community and we're a family, and that if one of us hurt, all of us hurt. You deal with it differently. You deal with it differently. I'm telling you, the one kid that year that I had to suspend brought a knife to school. And I was like, now you got the dubious distinction. Hooray for you. (laughs) You know, it was just like, and they were so ashamed that I was like, why you don't, I said, do you realize you're the only kid this happened to? And they were like, yeah, I figured that. But the point of it is they're going to make mistakes. They're going to do things. And that we have to build the relational capital on the front end so that you can mitigate a lot of those issues with the relationships that you have kids. Because one thing you can do, I remember when we had a kid that transferred in and the kid was kind of, you know, kind of wilding and having a difficult time. And the kids turned to the other kid and said, we don't do that here. What help do you need? Like, seriously, whoa, whoa. what help do you need? And was like, Dr. Brunson, our new friend needs some help. And that's exactly how it went down. And, and that was because that's how we built a community that if one of us is in crisis, one of us is hurting, we take care of each other. And when you do that and kids know that, they will tell you everything. When I say everything, they will tell you that a fight might is about to happen and so-and-so is fighting on, on TikTok with another kid or fighting on whatever. They will tell you because what they don't want is they don't, kids don't want chaos. They want peace. 
They want that. And so when you show them that can be the reality, they will do everything they can to keep it that way. But if it's just a, a free-for-all and we all in here throwing hands all the time, that's what we do, <laughs> mm-hmm. then it becomes it's what it becomes the identity of the school. It becomes the identity of the students. And then, unfortunately, it becomes their identity outside of their school because then now people are pointing and saying that's what's happening over there. But what I do want to say for those who are struggling with this is that it, all of that can be undone. You can build relational capital with your people. But it takes, it's going to take being self-reflective. It's going to take being honest. And it's going to take being real with students. Sometimes your kid is crying and they're into something. Sitting down on the floor next to them, I have cried with kids, my arm around them. I mean, I mean, six-foot-tall boys just breaking down because the last, when was the last time that somebody said something kind to them or gave them a hug? I mean, seriously, you just have to, you, you have to see another person's pain, and that's how you make this work. Because if you don't, then it's always chaos. It's always, you know, it's not a harmonious place. Who wants to work or live or, you know, in a system or a place like that? Nobody. So then you have to create the environment that you want. And it starts with the first thing you tell everyone. This is how it's going to be, and this is how we are going to get there. And it is. I mean, I've worked in some tough neighborhoods. Yes. Very tough neighborhoods and talk to gang, the gang members, you know, like, hey, can, I remember having a conversation with these rival gang, you know, leaders and was like, listen, and kept it. Like I said, keep it a buck. <laughs> I need the little homies to be able to come to and from school safely. Can you make that happen? And they were like, out of respect for you, we could do that. But simply now I'm standing there and mind you like, oh, I, I don't know. We're going to see how this goes. <laughs> But the reality is, once I did that, I showed them the respect, the street respect that Mm -hmm. they desired, and then we were cool. Man. Okay, this is my next to the last question. My next to the last. It's my <laughs> is it next a fun to the last. Mr. Producer wants me to cut. He, he's been telling one? me I need to cut I need to cut down on my podcast. I'm sorry, Mr. Producer. All right, find 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 some room for for some grace. But I'm having it's an interesting conversation. I, okay. So one of just so one of the things I just as we you know, we've been here, you you and I, you know, as you look at the landscape right now of education, um, we do, we do have lots of people who just want to come to America. We talk about how great we are. Mm-hmm. We have lots of people who for a while have wanted to come here to be educated. Mm-hmm. Um, but man, our country is rapidly, the demographics is rapidly changing. If you travel, I know you like to do talk about traveling. Mm-hmm. You go to some cities and towns. I mean, it could be all one race of families where they have settled and they're right. kind of all in the high school. And that's not nothing. It's nothing yeah. new. That's how we've done in America, right? Mm-hmm. We've had immigrants who come here in mm-hmm. America and they settle mm-hmm. and they settle in neighborhoods and they all go to the school mm-hmm. together and they all go to the same churches and mm-hmm. worship places of worship. Um, is it any different now when you see, I mean, I, I, we, we, we see lots and lots of different groups of refugees mm-hmm. and people who come to this country and, and are part of our, our you know, our systems. Mm-hmm. Has that changed? Has that changed the landscape of, of public education in terms of differentiation about how you how you have to teach mm-hmm. people who are getting still getting accustomed to mm-hmm. our culture? Have you noticed anything about just how the just the way 
our students that they, they look they're different and, and yeah. just and where they come from and their, well, cus- their like customs to, and cultures. I always like to correct people here in America. You know, we like to call our people of color minorities, but we're actually the global majority. If you if you travel, you will realize that we are the global majority. And when you think of it that way, then you don't you think of it from more of a positive than a mm. negative. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that. And so understand having an understanding of that then you think of it differently because this is this is what america was supposed to be that's the promise that it you know it you know either at the foot of the statue of liberty and thank you france for that but that just the foot of statue of liberty that's what it is like bring us come here we Mm -hmm. want you but what happened is this american exceptionalism this elitism kind of what i talked about earlier about who who we value and who we don't value when the reality is global the global majority are people of color sure and it's it's a beautiful thing if you travel to understand that we everyone just wants a place to belong that's why they go and they create their own communities within communities and things like that because they want to keep their own traditions like you say places of worship and things like that and there is a great way we can integrate all people and all of those things racial backgrounds ethnic backgrounds by just simply understanding that we're, we we all want the same thing access and opportunity and that everyone should be giving that we should be we should be giving that because that's really what we want to do we want to raise our children in safe communities we want to we want to have a great infrastructure clean water we want to have safe communities like everyone wants the same things but because of we've created this whole like I said American exceptionalism there could only be one at the top or there could only be a few at the top and that's the issue that we're having and it is definitely affecting how we're educating our students wow do you think we have we made progress and are, are we progressing or are we regressing have we have, have there been for for our global majorities uh, <laughs> yes. have we made progress and what do you see? Us going? Where do you see us going? I mean, we have, we, have we have definitely made, some made progress. The fact that you and I can actually openly talk about race <laughs> is a progress. It's small, it, it, but it is monumental. I mean, it's important to make to make that. I think we have made progress, um, but there are some people who are holding on to the past, as they mm. like to say, the good old days. <laughs> I'm trying to remind them that it wasn't all good for everyone. <laughs> say so. True. Let's, you know, and, and really that is about tradition and people are afraid of change. And that is really the, but the only thing that's constant in the world is change. And so if we would stop fighting against change and embrace progress, innovation, um, inclusion, diversity, we start really embracing that. We, we really, we could do this. Like I keep telling people America's superpower is this diversity but the kryptonite is racism. And if we don't if we don't tackle that, we we're going to continue to be here 20 years from now having the same conversation. And we're going to end on note. That's keeping it a buck. <laughs> yes. And we're going to end on that note. Um Yes. Tiffany, thank you. Uh that was that was enlightening for me. They always are, but I, I just I appreciate um our conversation and just the thoughtfulness and the way you think about these things and the way you share, because, you know, it, I think it helps. It helps us. It helps people. Um, and so I, I thank you for that. I think um, it, you're right. It's uh, the fact that we can have the conversation. And it's an important conversation to have. So I really, really appreciate you 
sharing today. Last question. This is something we ask every person who's <laughs> ever been on the 205 Vibe podcast mm-hmm. with your host, yours truly, Earl Dotson Jr. Um, <laughs> yes. So just a, just a little something. This is just like our fun questions. There's a little more about you. So Tiffany, if we were to, if I were to say, Tiffany, let me get, can I just, can I, I need a ride home. You know, I, I'm, my car broke down. And I know, of course, you'd be like, oh, sure, I can get right where you say. We get in your car. You turn on your, what you stream in, your music, the radio station. What is there, what you bumping? Like, is there a <laughs> genre of music or is there a, an artist that you just, as your go-to, like, you, like, you know, your go-to, like, to get, whether it gets you pumped up, what, what you listening to in the car at home when you listen, when you want to listen to some music? So, I, I like, um, I am an old school Chicago househead. <laughs> you put on some house music, it's going down. I'm kicking off shoes. It, 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 it's about to get sweaty in here, and we're about to do this. It's a good time all the time. I, it just takes me back to my youth. It just it 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 is the music that just reminds me of just all of my friends and all of the, you know the promises and all the things we've made to each other. Like it's just it takes me back to a place that it, unlike any other music. So now I like I like a little Afro house and some other things Love now. It. But Love if it. you want to talk about some old school Chicago house music. It's going down. Fantastic. Um, you're at home. You, you're relaxing. Ah, it's been a hard day's work or a hard <laughs> week's work. You turn on the TV. Is there, a, is, there a, is there like a movie that you can always watch no matter what? Or is there a, like a current favorite the color t- purple. Uh, TV show? The Color Purple. The Color Purple. There it I've is. I've seen it on Broadway in Chicago, um, Broadway, Chicago, and in New York. I've seen it, you know. And then I've seen the movie. I can tell you line <laughs> by line <laughs> the movie. I have read that book. Um, I think it's it's a masterpiece and um, a tour de force. Awesome. And then the last one. Mm-hmm. Um your husband and your son, mm-hmm. you know, and they, and you know, honey, mommy, it's your birthday. We want to celebrate you because mm-hmm. you're wonderful. I am. <laughs> Where is there a go-to restaurant or is there a go-to like dish? Like you put this in front of me every time or I'll go to somewhere and I'm ordering this favorite like food. This is my, this, this is my yeah. go-to. Like I, I'm enjoying I, this. I love Mexican food and, okay. and I love Mexican food. Oh yeah. And so we go to Mexico for my birthday every year. We've oh. been doing it last year. We didn't go because of COVID, but we go every single year. And that is something that we do. It's been a tradition of ours for, I don't know, the past 11 years. Awesome. 12 years. Yeah. Yeah. Mexico. And that, that, cause I just, I like to see the sunrise. Mm off the beach um, for my birthday. Yeah. Awesome. Dr. Tiffany Brunson, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. It was was a blast. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening to the 205 Vibe Podcast. Subscribe to the 205 Vibe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening now. Check out the blog, videos, and news on rps205.com slash 205 vibe.